If you weren't with us last Sunday, we're looking at a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is correcting the Jewish people's incomplete understanding of the law of Moses, and he's doing this in order to challenge their false sense of self-righteousness before God. For example, as we saw last week, if the command, thou shall not murder, also, as Jesus notes, includes our unjustified anger, anger without cause, which would be our emotions and our attitudes, and, and that adultery also encompasses thoughts and passions, even our imaginations, whether we act them out or not, then no one, no one could possibly ever consider, justifiably consider, themselves righteous before God on their own merits. I mean, you might not kill someone, but have you ever been angry? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever imagined something that was wicked, didn't act on it? God, that's still a sin. I mean, there's, looking at the law, it's impossible to approach God on your own merit. As Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, Indeed, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, because the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart, in the few verses leading up to where we find ourselves uh, this morning in verse 31, Jesus illustrates, I think in kind of a sarcastic way, a bit tongue-in-cheek, how silly, how religious attempts to outwardly fix what is fundamentally an internal problem, a condition. It's as ridiculous, Jesus says, as plucking out an eye to keep yourself from sinning, or cutting off a hand. All it does in the end is leave a person deformed. Again, as we work our way through the end of this chapter, and we will get to the end of this chapter, there will be a tendency to consider, as we look at these things, as we read through them, as we unpack them, a tendency to consider how you might be able to live up to this ideal. That'll be a natural tendency as we read through these things. You'll, you'll look at them, you'll judge yourself towards them, and you'll think, well, I can do this and that better. That's a natural thing, but reject it. Reject that compulsion. You see, as Christians, our reaction to the Sermon on the Mount should not be to feel condemned that we've fallen short. That's a given. Nor, nor should our reaction be to then scheme out various ways that we might better ourselves. Our reaction as Christians, looking at the totality of what Jesus is saying here, is to just get to our knees and prayerfully ask that Jesus might stand in the gap in the areas where we're lacking and work through the power of His Holy Spirit. You can't accomplish these things, but He can through something foreign to you, His Spirit. So let's continue our examination of this incredible sermon. Verse 31 of Matthew 5. Furthermore, again, I don't, I don't want to belabor a point, but Jesus is kind of segueing here from the topic of adultery. So He says, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In Jewish law, this was a formal document that, validate, that validated the dissolution of the marriage and allowed the parties to move on. So there was such a thing as a certificate of divorce within the law of Moses. Now, in light of what the law of Moses says about divorce, and then specifically how the scribes had interpreted these scriptures, Jesus declares, he says, You've heard it said, but I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except 
sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. In the Greek, the word that's translated here, sexual immorality, it's one word, it's pornea. And it broadly covered all sexual acts between adults outside of the covenant of marriage. This would include, but not be limited to, premarital or even uh, premarital heterosexual or homosexual actions, uh, as well as those that might take place during marriage, uh, occurring with someone other than your spouse. So it's a very broad term. In English, a better word uh, would be the kind of the old school phrase, uh, fornication. Fornication. Don't fornicate. Deuteronomy 24. The law broadly justified the act of ending a marriage the following way. I'll read it for you. The law says that it, if it happens that a man's wife finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, he could divorce. At this point, the law stipulated there would be a certificate that would be given that the marriage would be dissolved. Now, by the time of Christ, the rabbis were very much divided on what Jesus meant by using the word uncleanness. So that's the justifiable reason, uncleanness. You can divorce because of uncleanness. But what is uncleanness? Now, the liberals saw uncleanness as really being anything that a husband found displeasure in. That would be grounds for divorce. Literally, if you read through these type of things, it could include like burning your breakfast or finding a woman that you think would give you more pleasure than your current wife. Now, she's displeasing, unclean. I mean, very liberal in its interpretation. Now, the more conservative view of this law restricted uncleanness to a sexual sin that had to be proven by witnesses either happening before or during the marriage. For example, if you married a woman with the pretense that she was a virgin, but then you find out she's not a virgin because of a sexual act before marriage, that would be grounds, according to even the conservative view. In both instances, a, a formal certificate was required that would justify uh, that the reason was acceptable. Now, in this passage, Jesus, he's doing something more than simply aligning himself with the conservative belief that uncleanness spoke of adultery as being the only justifiable reason for the termination of a marriage. Jesus here, he does something brilliant. He extrapolates the tragic repercussions of an unjustifiable divorce. So he doesn't just align himself with the conservatives. He's like, you guys aren't even thinking through the ramifications of all of this. You see, this was something that the law didn't address. The rabbis intentionally ignored. Jesus says, look at it again. If a man divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality. Now, because the divorce in such a circumstance was not legal according to the law, Jesus is saying that the husband and wife are still married in the eyes of God even though they got a certificate of divorce. And because of that, an unlawful divorce, Jesus is saying the man now in turn is committing two additional sins. You guys aren't thinking about this. First, the man is guilty of unlawful divorce. Except for sexual immorality, he has no grounds. That's a violation. And then while the law didn't exactly list out the consequences, Jesus does. You see, Jesus says that when the man's wife eventually remarries, because she's not technically divorced in the eyes of God, this man's sinful actions are now causing her to commit adultery 
as well as her new husband. And since adultery, according to Leviticus, was a capital offense demanding death, this was not a good dynamic. Because the illegal separation, the unlawful divorce, led to this sin, Jesus is holding the husband also responsible for now the sin of the wife and the new husband. Now, if that seems a little harsh and complicated, you're absolutely right. It is. Like the law was strict in order to reinforce both the sanctity of matrimony and the importance of marital permanence. Now, yes, there were concessions for sin, and they're considered in the law. But divorce was never, ever God's ideal. Now, I'm, I'm going to leave off kind of a larger discussion of this particular weighty topic until Matthew 19, when Jesus gives a more extensive teaching on the topic of divorce. I'll just say I'm very glad that we are under grace. And not just under grace, but we serve a God of second chances. That said, Jesus' point in bringing up this controversial topic was to once again take the letter of the law deeper than they were considering. They were arguing about the particulars of divorce without ever considering the adverse ramifications. If any point of application can and should be made without the benefits of the larger discussion, which we'll get to, you do need to realize just a few very quick things about divorce. First, there are biblical grounds whereby divorce is permissible by God. You should know that. In this passage, adultery, sexual immorality are one justifiable reason. In other places, we'll find that the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse by an unbelieving spouse is the other. So there are reasons and justifiable um, explanations, motivations for divorce. Not God's ideal, but there's still concessions for sin. Now, sadly, I think the church has placed too much of a stigma around the topic of divorce that's been unhelpful and unnecessary. But again, we'll get to that in more detail later. Secondly, just as there are marriages accepted by the state, but rejected by God, there are also divorces and remarries recognized by God and not. Again, it's a complicated subject. It'll take a more expansive conversation in Matthew 19. But if you get divorced for the wrong reasons, there are repercussions in the eyes of God that can't be avoided. Lastly, while divorce may at the time have an appeal, divorce should be avoided if at all possible. And the reason is that the repercussions tend to reach much, much further than you could ever, ever imagine. You might think right now that, that this is the best solution. And in certain instances it might. But always go into it with wise, eyes wide open that there are things that you can't see. Effects that you don't know. Divorce is a heavy thing. And I will add that God will always bless a person who's willing to set aside temporary feelings in order to be obedient. If you're like, well, I just don't love that guy anymore. Well, that doesn't matter to start with. 
And two, if you'll get over that, trust Jesus, continue, he'll bless you. God always blesses, especially when we're willing to make a sacrifice. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Within the law, God had been clear that his name was not to be taken in vain. As such, there were all kinds of stipulations about the name of God. They didn't utter the name of God. Uh, They didn't even write the consonants uh, or the vowels. They only wrote the consonants in regards to the name of God. And as a result, the Hebrew people forbid swearing on the name of the Lord. Like you couldn't make an oath or a pro. I swear on the name of God. No, 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 no. You're not allowed to do that when it comes to making an oath with someone else. Jesus adds, but I say to you, So I'm going to take Jesus adding, I'm going to carry forth God's intentions beyond what you perceive. Do not swear at all. (laughs) So they say, you shouldn't need to confirm an oath or a promise, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but, so instead of, placing the trustworthiness of your oaths and the surety of your promises on any of those things, Jesus just says, look at it, let your yes be yes and your no, no. It's not that complicated. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Practically speaking, Jesus is saying that his disciples needed to possess the type of internal character that their word was their bond. And therefore, any oaths or promises that were made could be trusted. You didn't need all this other silly stuff. Basically, if you make a promise, Jesus is telling you as his disciple, keep the promise so that your words have value and mean something. Now, I don't want to belabor such an obvious point, but isn't it true that people who fail to make good on what they say they're going to do are some of the most difficult people to be friends with? They're difficult to be around. Over time, their words end up being meaningless. And they become undependable. Heaven forbid that any disciple of Jesus or member of Calvary 316 should taint his witness in such an unavoidable way. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Napoleon Barnaparte famously said the best way to keep one's word is not to give it. (laughs) And there's some truth to that. Like There is wisdom in refusing to rack up a debt with your words you can never pay off with your actions. Many of us should learn the art of saying no. And that's okay. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. It's okay to say no, especially as opposed to saying yes when you know in the moment there's no way you can follow through. Just say no. Because we reflect Jesus, friend, Christians should contrast this world and that we make promises that people can depend on us following through with. Jesus continues, verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Admittedly, There's a lot of controversy around these verses. And I'll add, I think, a misunderstanding as to what Jesus was and was not saying to his disciples. 
let me give you a very practical example of what I mean. In his commentary on the Bible called The Message, it's not a translation, it's a commentary, written by Eugene Peterson, he presents this passage. This is his twist on this passage. He writes, here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. Now, without question, there is a camp that takes what Jesus is saying here as a prohibition of self-defense. They'll argue that when facing someone that wants to cause you bodily harm, Christians are called by Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount to submit and that we're forbidden from fighting back. Now, before I say anything further, let me at least acknowledge the reality that there is an incredible power in nonviolent reaction to violent aggression. Martin Luther King Jr. and many of the pastors behind the civil rights movement are wonderful examples of that particular reality. By refusing to return violence with violence, these brave men and women were able to sway public opinion their direction and in doing so, bring about radical social change to America. Sadly, that's a lesson that many have forgotten. And yet, while a subject like this could merit its own study, you know, in and of itself, in the end, my problem, my issue with this particular perspective is threefold. One, it fails to take into account the totality of what the scriptures say about the topic. You shouldn't just cherry pick one verse and build a whole theology out of it. The Bible has to substantiate it from cover to cover. Two, the issue is complex. It's not black and white, and it can vary circumstantially. What you might need to do in one situation might be different than another, and that's okay. Thirdly, my biggest issue with this perspective is that it's not what Jesus was advocating in this passage. For starters, there is a great misconception about this law that Jesus references that was originally presented in Exodus 21. In fact, Gandhi, another famous advocate of nonviolent protest, mocked the virtue of the statue when he joked, an eye for an eye ends up making the whole world blind. Sad for Gandhi, instead of making fun of Christians, he should have spent more time focusing on how a person gets to heaven. But I'll leave that there. Understand, the law referenced by Jesus, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it was completely revolutionary in the day in which God gave it. And it was intentionally crafted by God in order to contrast the ethics of his people with the pagan nations around them. You see, this law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, required an even-handed, proportional, just retribution for a crime that was to be measured out and executed by the larger society and not the victim himself. An eye for an eye presented guardrails, important guardrails, that prohibited a society from devolving into vigilante justice. Ultimately, the goal of the command was to restrict the judges of Israel regarding what could and could not be considered a fair retribution. This law limited a verdict 
and therefore the punishment, to no more than the same impact yielded by the crime itself. Like the price for an eye or a tooth, things that couldn't grow back and be restored to the victim, could not exceed requiring an eye or a tooth from the perpetrator as recompense. With that in mind, we need to consider the context in which Jesus was invoking now this principle of of an even-handed retribution. Basically, what scenario is Jesus taking this law and now applying it to? When Jesus says, look again at the text, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Jesus is obviously taking a principle from the law designed to place limitations on the way that judges could execute appropriate retribution. And now he's applying it to individuals who are facing a very specific action within that culture. Jesus is clear, a slap to the right cheek. And that's important. Because the right hand in ancient cultures were were known, even biblically, as the hand of power, the right hand. You're sitting at my right hand. The hand of power. The reason that it was the hand of power is that most people in ancient cultures were right-handed. Now, there are examples of there being left-handers, but by and large, the majority of people were right-handed. The power of the right hand. What that tells us is that an open-handed slap to your right cheek, Jesus is describing, if everyone is right-handed, is what? It's a backhand. It's the only way you can do it. To slap the right cheek, if everyone's right-handed, it would be with the back of the hand. Now that is important because it tells us that Jesus isn't describing a physical assault that's aimed at inflicting bodily harm, like being punched with a closed fist or struck with an open palm. But Jesus is describing a personal insult designed to entice a reaction and a response. You know, when such an overture was made, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Basically, in the original language, don't align yourself with those you already know have a bad nature or bad intention. But instead, what does he tell you to do? Turn the other cheek to him also. And again, the idea in its context of turning the other cheek had a specific connotation. Jesus wasn't telling his disciples that it was somehow wrong to defend oneself against a violent aggressor. That if someone punched you in the right cheek, you were to offer up the left one as well. Instead, within the context of the law, he cited, Jesus is saying that we should reciprocate the insult, an eye for an eye, and seek to then de-escalate the situation by turning the other cheek. Again, I'll repeat that. Jesus is saying we should resist reciprocating the insult, the eye for an eye, and seek to de-escalate the situation. We should turn the other cheek. Basically what Jesus is saying, the way that we would frame it, don't return insults with insults. You're my disciples. Don't do that. In way of application, if someone punches you in the face, don't think you're being holy if you decide to roll over and take the beat down. Now, sometimes, maybe Jesus tells you to take the beat down. And that's between you and him. But my advice, generally speaking, is the same that I give either of my two sons. 
If there is a violent aggressor, put up both hands. Defend yourself. And if you have to go on the offense, keep it proportional. An eye for an eye, but not an eye and a tooth and a kidney as well. I'll also add that there's something noble in fighting to defend the defenseless. I had a dear friend who a few years ago came to church a week after giving his life to Jesus. And he showed up at church beaten up. I mean, really beaten up. Swollen face, black eyes, a broken rib or two. And I asked him, I said, what happened? He said he was at a wedding the day before, and some guys who were drunk were making visible threats at a lesbian couple at the reception. Knowing that they were outnumbered, knowing they could not defend themselves, he stepped in, knowing what was going to happen. He fought back, but there were too many. I asked him, I said, why, why did you do what you did? And he said, well, I gave my life to Jesus, and I figured that's what Jesus would do. You know, Christian, sometimes self-defense is necessary. As a Christ follower, defending the defenseless is always necessary. Now, getting a little bit more to the heart of what Jesus is addressing, think about it this way. When was the last time somebody verbally insulted you? And you didn't immediately feel the compulsion to fire right back? Every time, right? And that's the natural compulsion. But then let me ask, when was the last time you fired right back and that situation got better? <laughs> right? It didn't. Most of the time, it devolves into a total mess. As Jesus' disciples, this is what he's getting at. He's saying, in a, in a world of evil, wicked people, we should remain above the fray. And we should be willing to do what we have to do to de-escalate situations. Especially when we know doing so will likely require of us to let go of our pride, take the insult, and maybe even return kindness in its place. Jesus adds, verse 40, If someone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, Again, is Jesus saying here that you shouldn't defend yourself against a frivolous lawsuit? I don't think so. And I don't think so for the same reasons as before. You've got to take in the totality of Scripture. You've got to add different things to it. You've got to really look at it from cover to cover, the topic. Instead, I believe that Jesus is making more of a case. Again, he's talking about recompense, isn't he? He's talking about making restitution, how to handle these type of interpersonal relationships. And I think he's, he's saying that when a person sues you, and they're not suing you maliciously, they're suing you with cause. You've done something stupid. In such a case, if you've harmed someone, and the appropriate response is your tunic, you should be willing to go above and beyond and give your cloak as well, if you're in the wrong. Again, we're talking about a heart issue. Not letter of the law. If the law required fill in the blank, Jesus is saying our contrition should do more than just what's asked or what's expected. It should go above and beyond to articulate that we're sorry. Verse 41, And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. 
In Roman society, by law, a soldier had the right to commission a person to carry any item for him up to a mile. One mile was the legal maximum. Because Galilee was home to a large military presence, this dynamic was something that the the Jewish uh, residents listening to Jesus' sermon here would have understood very well. In fact, a great example of this is in Scripture. It's presented in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. Jesus has been scourged, and he's been forced now to carry his cross down the Via Della Rosa to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And on his way, he's just overcome. He's exhausted. He can't do it. And so what happens, the soldiers pull out indiscriminately, just randomly from the crowd, a, a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And we're told that they compelled him to bear Jesus' cross the rest of the way. This is this particular law and practice. Now, in this verse, Jesus was saying something that was very, very difficult for his disciples to hear, let alone accept. The Hebrews, keep in mind, like they are an oppressed people under the military thumb of an occupier, Rome. And Jewish people were deeply patriotic. They hated the Romans. Like, please realize, being called out by a Roman soldier and given this particular command to carry whatever it was a mile, it was as insulting as it was infuriating. And yet Jesus here, he's challenging their heart, isn't he? Instead of being angry, instead of being mad at a situation, Jesus instructs his disciples to not only go one mile as Roman law may require, he says, you go two. Heavy. It's a truth that we don't exactly face. The same kind of dynamic as those living in the Galilee during the first century. And yet, the principle that Jesus is articulating does have an application to our civic responsibilities as his disciples. You see, when it comes to the basic duties, our ruling government asks of its citizenry, we as disciples of Jesus should be willing to go above and beyond the minimum requirement. For example, when it comes to casting a ballot, instead of voting only once, we should be willing to cast two. I kid, if there's somebody in the state watching, it was a joke. It was a joke. We're not advocating voter fraud. But you get the point. We should be willing, go one mile, go two. Verse 42. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Again, I believe it's an overreach to assume that Jesus wants us to give to someone without applying any type of wise considerations. Such a perspective fails to take into account the totality of what the Bible says on that topic about being generous. To this point, Jesus in the text doesn't specify how much you're to give to the one who's asking or or how much you're to lend to the one that's asking to borrow. As with so much of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't giving his disciples rules to obey, but he's describing the type of people we're to be. As Christians, we're to be known 
You don't do generosity. You are generous. It manifests from a spirit inside of you, a generous spirit. And Jesus is saying, generosity, it's a central character trait to those that follow me, to my disciples. To him who asks, give. From him who wants to borrow, don't turn away. Be open to it. Don't be closed-minded. Never forget, God has given you physical blessings. And he hasn't given them to you to hoard to yourself. You're going to die and they don't go with you. Instead, God has blessed you in order for you to be a conduit by which he might bless those around you. And I promise if you adopt a generous spirit, you get more of the blessing as a result. Verse 43, you've heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. While in Leviticus 19, verse 18, the people were indeed instructed to love thy neighbor as thyself, there is no passage at all in the Old Testament where God instructs his people to hate their enemies. It would appear that this was a false interpretation taught by the rabbis. Again, Jesus doesn't say it was written. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Only half of that is true. But I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a second. This is Jesus, and he's saying, love your enemies. And the word he's using for love isn't, isn't like, it's not phileo. It's not like a brotherly love. It's not like a simple love. It's not like the kind of love you have for ice cream. It's a deep love. It's agape. Love. A divine love. Bless those who curse you, or, or literally, speak blessings. Speak well of those who speak evil of you. Do good to those who hate you. Or, or basically, be the author. Author goodness towards those in your life trying to author hate. And pray for those who spitefully use you or treat you abusively and persecute you. Jesus is exhorting you and me to respond to the evil that might be directed towards us with the opposite reaction. An enemy, love them. Those who curse, bless. Those who hate, do good. Those who spitefully use and persecute you, pray for them. It's worth pointing out two realities of this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. First, what a lofty, set of commands, right? I mean, you read through that, and I mean, it hits you. Wow. And if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, he is speaking them towards you. Can't we be honest that apart from the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives, none of what Jesus just said would be possible? Like, in fact, such characteristics, such reactions are absolutely, completely foreign to the way the world naturally operates. Secondly, when you read through this, isn't it a great depiction, a description of Jesus? Isn't this Jesus? And in turn, a great illustration of the way that grace is designed to operate. You know, I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't treat me the way I've treated him. 
Can I get an amen? I'm so thankful that he wasn't an adversary when I was an enemy. That while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. I'm so thankful that he didn't curse me when I cursed him. That he didn't author hate when I've hated him. I'm so thankful that Jesus hasn't returned spite for spite and persecuted me. I'm so thankful that he hasn't returned back to me the things that I deserve to be given. So many people in this world, they relate to God on what they think they deserve. Friend, that is such a misguided and dangerous belief. For if you really want God to treat you in the way that you deserve to be treated, well, it's bad. You know, so much of what Jesus is discussing here, it's a heavenly reciprocation to a world filled with evil. And Christian, by His grace, Jesus has given us the opposite of what we deserve. And for that, I'm thankful. And in the end, we're only, we will only ever be able to demonstrate this type of divine grace to the world around us when we first experience that divine grace for ourselves and been thoroughly transformed by it. It's the only way this type of reaction is possible. Now, why is it important for Jesus' disciples to emulate these things? Verse 45 he says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This phrase, He makes His sun rise on the just and unjust, and sends rain on the just and unjust, it, it's really a fascinating phrase. You know, in Jesus' day, as with all of the centuries that predated, because it was believed that the gods controlled Every aspect of the natural world, there was gods for everything. Weather patterns were viewed by the population at large as being the evidence of what? Either divine favor, indicating you were good and just, or displeasure, evil and unjust. Today we call this karmic justice. It's the belief that good people will always have good come back around to them. And that evil people will ultimately get their due. What this means is bad things, the rain, should be seen as the judgment of God, whereas the good things, the sun rising, evidence of God's displeasure. But Jesus completely counters this, doesn't he? Like in light of what he's just said, that his disciples would have enemies, that his disciples would be cursed, that his disciples would be hated, treated spitefully and persecuted, and making this simple statement, Jesus affirms that everyone on earth is subjected to the same experiences. It rains on the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. Same with the sun rising. You can't judge a person based upon their experiences. In contrast, what differentiates the good and the just person from the evil and the unjust person is not circumstantially. It's not circumstance. It's not situation. What differentiates us is one thing. It's whether or not you're considered a child of God. 
That's what differentiates people. Jesus closes out the section by pointing out why his disciples are so different. Verses 46, 47, 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? <laughs> tax collectors in this, in this society were considered to be the most morally corrupt people. In fact, we'll get to that when we get to the testimony of, of our author, Matthew, Levi. If you greet your brother only, or, or you receive him joyfully, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Like, if you perform the basics of what the law requires, Jesus is saying, what makes you different than anyone else? I, I have to also add, you know, that while not a believer at this point, I think Matthew is in the crowd, and he's got to be sitting there thinking, you're picking on the tax collectors, you know, like, like he, he remembered this. He jotted this down. Therefore, so Jesus sums up his point. It's really the point of the whole chapter. He says, you shall be perfect. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus really wraps up the thought that he introduced back in set, verse 17 by throwing down the gauntlet. If a person is trying to be right with God by obeying the law, Jesus is saying nothing shy of complete and total perfection was required. Like There was no escaping the reality that even beyond the letter of the law, a person was required to be blameless regarding the heart of God behind the law if they were to be righteous. So what should our reaction be? Our reaction should be, <laughs> I can't do this at all. And in fact, I really hope that if righteousness came by the law, that God has another plan. God, I don't know if you're aware, but if, if we're right by obeying these things, none of us can do it. So I hope there's a backup, a plan B. That's your reaction. You have not only come to see yourself correctly, but you now see the ultimate mission of King Jesus. I hope God has another plan. Oh, he indeed does. In making this statement, and I've probably read through this a hundred times this week, and I didn't see it until the very end. The very end. Last time it hit me. This phrase, you shall be perfect. You know, Jesus here, he's not, the way it's structured, the way it's written, you shall be, be perfect. He's not giving them a goal to attain, is he? You shall be perfect. Imagine being there on the hillside. You shall be perfect. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's not saying you're going to do perfection or attain perfection. Rather, what Jesus is saying here is he's making a predictive statement, isn't he? You shall be. My disciples, one day you will become. You will be. You shall be perfect. But I'm not. No, no, that's cool. You're not. You will be. Because of Jesus' righteousness, and what was done on the cross, and how it's been now imparted to us. You and I are justified before our Father in heaven. What that means is that when God sees you right now, you know what He sees? 
He doesn't see your imperfections. He doesn't see your flaws. He doesn't see your shortcomings. There is therefore now no condemnation for what person? For those who are in Christ Jesus. What that means is that when God sees you, He sees you just as if I, justified, never sinned. He sees you in righteousness. Why? Because He sees Jesus covering you. Let that sink in for a moment. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your failures. He doesn't see your shortcomings. When God sees you, He is filled with pride and love because He sees Jesus in you. How incredible. You know, many years after this Sermon on the Mount, the Apostle Paul would give another sermon in a synagogue in Antioch. This is what he would declare in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you that through this man Jesus is preached the forgiveness of sins, and by him... Everyone who believes is justified, and note, from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It is not a righteousness that you attain. It is a righteousness that is given. It is not a standing that you work hard to have. It is one that can only be given and then received by faith. And so, Father, Lord, we just let these words sink in and let them settle into our hearts. In Jesus' name.